This podcast with director Jeffrey Walker is brought to you by JMC Academy, Australia's leading creative education provider. With degrees in film, acting, entertainment management, design, music, audio engineering, animation and game design, JMC has a course for every type of creative. Search JMC Academy to learn more. And you can stream Jeffrey Walker's TV series, The Artful Dodger, on Disney Plus now. Hello and welcome to the Variety Australia podcast. I am your host, Poppy Reed, and today's episode features a truly exceptional guest, Jeffrey Walker. He is a trailblazing director and producer, and his career began as a child actor and evolved into directing, earning him widespread acclaim. His directorial brilliance has been recognised with numerous awards, including the AFI Young Actors Award and multiple Australian Directors Guild Awards. Known for his work on the recent Artful Dodger, which I have been binge-watching on Disney, Modern Family, another show that is my favourite, and Young Rock, incredible show. Uh, Jeff's remarkable contributions to both Australian and international cinema have me very, very excited to have this chat today here at JMC Academy in Melbourne in front of a live audience. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. I want to go all the way back to when you were nine years old Mm. and you were cast as the beloved Bronson in Round the Twist. Firstly, what was that experience like and how did that background in acting and especially as a a young person influence your approach to directing? and then I've got another question around that, but I, I don't want to put too many questions too many in the questions one question. In the first. Well, one. yeah. I did, by the time that I was, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, when I was doing Round the Twist, I was, yeah, nine years old. I'd, I think I'd been acting for two years by then, so I felt like a seasoned pro <laughs> starting at seven. Um, and I'd worked on another couple of kids' shows, but the thing with Round the Twist is that it was the, the, the audition that I did was for the second season. So the first season I'd watched at home with my sister and absolutely loved on. It was on like Sunday morning on Channel 7. We'd wake up and watch it and absolutely love it. And then like a couple of years later, I was, you know, the, the, the original Bronson had grown too old to play, the, you know, to play Bronson. And so I was able to go in and audition and do it. Um, and it was just an amazing experience, beautiful scripts and great people. And it's just one of those rare things that all these years later now, you know, 30 something years later, it still comes back and comes up in conversation. And it's a, it's just one of those uh, never ending, you know, pieces that I've been a part of, I guess. And I think even next year, they're doing a, a musical version of it live on stage. Which is and are you involved? Crazy. No, I, they, I don't think uh, I could play the dad maybe now or something, I'm not sure. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it, it was just one of those, yeah, one of those really lucky ones to have been a part of. I remember I think on seasons three and four, the Queen visited the set and, you know, it had this sort of <laughs> odd kind of, you know, young, now it's very retro and kind of people haven't thought about it in 20 years and they hear the theme song and it comes back up in their head. So, um, so it certainly launched, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the next... I guess six or seven years, you know, the time that I spent acting as a young teenager and so on, it was uh, it was the project that, you know, kind of kept me busy all that time. But I, I definitely, as you were sort of alluding to, you know, the um, it was, the, I was really in a state of training from a very young age for what I wanted to do, which was work behind the scenes. I wasn't sure, sure exactly as what, but I knew that, you know, I loved acting, but I was, you know, really keen to sort of move behind the camera and... Uh, and so I, yeah, I, I treated my 10 years as, an, as a young actor until the age of 17 as an apprenticeship for, um, yeah, to become a director. Secretly, secretly doing mm-hmm. an apprenticeship. That's it. And did it change the way that you now work with young actors and child actors? Like, I, I guess that experience and being on the front end of the camera, how did that change the way that you deal with those types of actors behind the camera? Yeah, I think, well, I've got young kids as well. So, you know, like in terms of being on set, you know, it's sort of the, the immediacy of, of, you know, dealing with 
you know, young people and all that kind of stuff is, uh, you know, is my day-to-day life as well. So, you know, uh, that that probably is more present because you just sort of know the natural sort of rhythms that a kid who's 10 or, you know, whatever has and, you, you know, kind of when they'd get tired and when they'd be on their game and what sort of emotion they might be trying to access to, you know, perform a scene and so on. Um, you know, and I do think I probably got, you know, a sense of what it is like to be on set, how much fun it can be, how much... Uh, it's a real high to be on set because it's really exciting. And, and as a kid, you know, you sort of, you feel like, oh, that could just keep going forever. And you know that not for everyone it can. So um, I think I'm very sort of sensitive to the fact that it's an amazing, incredible experience when you're there and you've got to sort of, um, I guess, uh, you know, make them feel like they're supported, you know, and that their identity isn't completely wrapped up in that and that beyond that, they're, you know, they're still going to have a great time in their life and other things. So there is a sort of a bigger consciousness that sometimes comes in when I'm working with young actors. On The Clearing recently, we had lots of young kids, you know, who were in a cult and it was really like, you know, sort of high sort of drama and a very stressful sort of psychological thriller. And, and the key to that one was just, you know, to get the kids in last minute and shoot the scenes that were quite stressful to film, then go back to the nice light fun set as quick as possible, get them off set again and that was it, you know. Yeah. So I'm sort of always trying to work out ways to make it, you know, enjoyable and, and make sure we also get the performances we need to get as well. Yeah, so there's a psychological safety thing that you need to be aware of, I guess, with these kids. And then also you mentioned making sure that they're not tying their identity to the identity of their character in a way. How does that work when you're on set? Well, I think that, you know, like from a very young age, they all sort of appreciate that they're using their imagination and that they're pretending and that they're acting and all that kind of stuff, you know. And the young fellow that I'm working with at the moment is only like five years old and he's cheeky and fun like every five-year-old, but he really understands. Like some kids I would never say action because then they start acting and it gets all weird and not real. <laughs> this this little one, he, you know, you say action, he slides into his character and if he's got to be mean, he's got to be this, he's got to be happy, he's got to, you know, wrestle, he's got to remember a certain thing. He, he's unbelievable. So, And I always work, try to work with, a you know, a dramaturg on set as well, someone who's a really, because I'm busy doing, you know, lots of stuff and they, you know, kids need that nice continuity of somebody who's always with them and, and so I can sort of, you know, if I'm getting through, it's great. And then I can go and whisper to Greg Saunders, who's terrific, been doing it for, you know, 20 odd years or something. I can go, yeah, let's try this or try that. And then he'll just do a little, you know, whisper and he gets the sort of the, um, what are they, the what's their role called? The a drama? Dramaturg. T-U-R-G? Mm-hmm. What, what is this? So they would work, they can, they work on, you know, grown up movies too. And so basically not to say that, you know, some directors aren't, you know, uh, performance directors, sometimes they're busy or whatever, but if you've got to build an ensemble, then you might get effectively like someone to come in and it's like, you know, you're, you're studying acting again. So, you know, instead of it just being like, okay, there's the pages, the scene, you're going to sit over there and do this. It's like, let's do some homework on this thing and let's try some improv and who are these characters? And so it gives an opportunity during a rehearsal process that sometimes the director's busy with location scouting and doing other things. Um, it's an opportunity for the ensemble to spend time together. It's not really common on a, on a you know, an adult film set, you know, but it does happen and it happens in rehearsal periods for films quite a bit. But certainly for kids, um, you know, having someone basically like a yeah, drama coach effectively there to, you know, to help them do it. I mean, my thing is like with kids, I don't want their parents to ever run the lines with them. That's not their role at all. I don't want, you know, kind of smile, you're on camera. You know, I don't want any, any of that stuff. I mm. just will say, always say to the parents, all you've got to do is be there for a hug and a paddle and a chat and, you know, that kind of stuff. And we'll take care of everything else. Teach them the lines as late as possible so they're not like learning them and sounding like a robot and you know all that kind of stuff or sometimes I'll just stand by the camera and say the line they repeat it back and we get it and we move on so there's like a million little techniques I'm trying to employ to get that sort of naturalistic performance and being a dad would help too it does yeah yes because I got all the little ones and I was thinking the other day I saw our little five-year-old on set I was like I wonder how I get my five-year-old to do any of this stuff and why have you never brought them in 
It's it's coming. My my middle my middle boy who looks is eight and looks exactly like I did in in round the twist, a shock of red hair and all this sort of stuff. He um he's like, Dad, I'd like to be in your movies now. I'm like, okay, pressure's on now. You're like I know a guy. It. Maybe uh, that's it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's another um you know talking about the dramaturg. There was another thing that I learned about recently, which is the director's attachment. Mm-hmm. So a, an, a director who can shadow you, but they're not a director yet. And it's something that um, not every director does. It's actually quite a beautiful contribution to our emerging uh, professionals within the industry. And it's something that you do. And something that I have done many times mm. over. And uh, in, in the audience today is Peter Dodds, who um, produced Neighbours. And the very first attachment that um, that I did was to do, you know, two blocks on Neighbours with a with a mentor director. And that mentor director, because of the way they shoot that show, is five episodes per block. In the first block that I shadowed, I was able to direct the whole episode of that show. And the scenes are spread out over the, the days of the shoot, so you're just dropping in and doing a scene every now and then. And on the second block, I went through that attachment program, through Film Vic at that stage, you know, I was able to do two episodes. So suddenly I had three episodes and Peter could make the decision, all right, we'll take a chance on you and you can come and direct. So um, Shout out so, to Peter. Shout out to Peter. So, um, so yeah, and, then, and, I did, and I've since then, even when I've worked in the States, um, you know, when I did Modern Family, I was booked to work on it, but I shadowed on it before I came out and attached myself to another director and asked a million questions and sat on set and watched it all. And then when you start, you'd know a little more about it. And uh, and uh, and similarly now, you know, with, I would say probably, I think every project or if not, you know, every other, it feels like every project, you know, there's a director's attachment who comes through and work with them. And, you know, that sometimes it's kind of, you know, it's mostly observational. I'm not always able to, you know, give over scenes and stuff because everyone's very precious because of the, you know, I guess the budget range and the stuff that we're making and so on. But, um, you know, in pre-production, they're able to see how all the meetings work. They're able to look at a, you know, they've worked a little bit in film. Normally the attachments have done something. They've either made a short, they've worked a little bit in, uh, they've just started working in television or something. And this, they're witnessing maybe a, a scale of production they haven't seen before. And so, you know, you're sort of hopefully arming them with, uh, what should be the last port of call before taking whatever that next step may be. So for anyone in the audience that might want to become a director's attachment, how do you do it? How could they possibly be given, you know, that kind of gift that you were given? Well, there's a, there's there's like official ones through all of the state funding bodies. Sometimes the Australian Directors Guild will do them. There might be some initiatives through uh, Screen Australia as well. Um, there's a lot of qualifying things that are kind of really annoying to people because, you, know, so, you know, they read them and they go like, oh, how do I get that experience, you want me to have experience, but I need this to get that experience. So yeah. there, there is a rigmarole like all those bureaucracies and all this, you know, the funding body things, you know, but um, they do create opportunities and they get behind people and champion them and, and it's competitive and it's stressful and all those things to compete, you know, to, to get those ops. And so, um, but if you can persevere and, and keep chatting to the whatever the state funding bodies are, they are there, you know, for you and for us as filmmakers and, um, and they're used to getting bugged by people who, you know, want to get that break. And so uh, there's, yeah, a million things on the website about it and you can call them and email them and do all those things. But there's a lot of qualifying things that you have to meet before you can sort of, um, yeah, be in consideration. I love that that's the process and it's not a it's who you know kind of thing. Like, no, it's Do you have a, a mate that's a director or, you know... Like that's a very common thing within the music industry. It is very much a who you know industry, and a lot yes. of interns. Will and we do we do unofficial, you know. Like I'll always, you know, the, I've got lots of friends who are like, "Hey, when you're shooting this next thing, can I come and visit?" Maybe they've worked in other departments, grip or whatever it might be, and they're like, "I want to, you know, start directing stuff." I'm like, "We'll come visit anytime. We'll hang out on set for a week, and we do those ones as well." <laughs> you know, helping a friend out. But the official ones are very official, and you know, you have to have the yeah runs on the board, so to speak. And probably when you learn the most as well, because it's absolutely. An and also, it's when you put on your CV, it's. It's, you, everyone knows, I know if I see that on a CV, they've had to 
vie really hard to get it. Um, and, you know, and that's, I guess, the, the thing of, yeah, the funding bodies are sort of everyone who receives funding for anything in any capacity, um, everyone knows that they've been vetted and gone through a big process to achieve that. So you can go, I did that, and you go, oh, I can instantly see the six months of work that it took to make that happen. And, uh, yeah, and that's something to be uh, respected and appreciated. And you mentioned Modern Family just a little bit before. You've also done Young Rock. You were also the executive producer on Amy Poehler's Difficult People to. You've had some really impressive credits in the US. How did you break the US? Well, I, the first time I went over there, I think that because I'd started acting as a kid and I <coughs> and I really viewed the film industry as, um, you know, it was like going to be a lifelong pursuit. Um, and I would have viewed it as a young person, you know, with being besotted by, you know, big Hollywood directors and Hollywood in general, as a Hollywood was like, you know, going to the Olympics, is that you can compete in, the, in, every, in every other track meet in the world but until you go to the Olympics and figure out, you know, can you compete at that level. For me, I had sort of Hollywood put on that sort of level. So it wasn't so much like <clears throat> I've got this film that, you know, I've got to go over and take my story and my unique voice over. I was just like, I've got to go to Hollywood. It's just you as, play simple, as, simple play. As, as simple as that dream because mm. it started when I was seven or eight years old, right? Mm. And so um, so I was trying to make choices of projects that would, you know, help that journey and just sort of work out whether it was, you know, somewhere that I could uh, work and prove myself and all those sort of things. Um, and then I, I went over and I tried to take a few meetings with agents, but I had a you know list of shows that um, at that time, very different now, but at that time, uh, Australian shows really weren't travelling to the States, so they could watch it, but they probably didn't know if it was the best show or the worst show being made in Australia. It was like, yeah, that's pretty good, maybe. Uh, you know, what else is coming out of there? So, um, so then eventually it sort of built that there was, you know, more things that had a tiny bit more currency. Eventually one agent, you know, took a chance on me and... Who was that um, agent? So it's, I'm still with uh, with him now. It's Michael Pio, and they're at uh, Innovative Artists, which is kind of like nice. uh, there's like three or four very big agencies, and they'd be like the agencies below them, and they're terrific. And they, you know, they work with crews, and they work with they have a little big literary department. They have fabulous actors as well, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they were definitely in that sort of like you know I always you know I don't know if he likes this comparison or not, but Michael really had to be a uh, you know door to door shampoo salesman, to, convincing people to get something that they had no idea that they needed, really. Because That's who you need, an advocate. Like absolutely. That. And, uh, you know, he, he had to really go to work. And traditionally, you know, agents are wonderful at managing offers, but I was not in that space at all. It was like he had to convince people to meet. Why would I meet with this person? He just kept working and working and working and working. Um, and then eventually, uh, yeah, someone took the time to, you know, watch all the material and everything. And um, and then, uh, yeah, and I did a lot of work at 20th um, yeah, for eight or nine years before COVID and stuff. It just was, yeah, nice busy time. And you um, were based there? I would come and go, you okay. know. So, uh, yeah, because I was always making projects back in Australia as well. And so the projects that I make in the States often is short, you know, to do Modern Families only eight days. It was three days of prep and you shoot, you know, the next week. And then if you want to fly back home, you know, whatever. So sometimes I go over and string a few things together. Sometimes I go, oh, I'm in post-production and if I had a kind Australian producer, I'd say, listen, can I sneak over to the States and work on this show I really love? And they're like, yeah, go on. Mm. And so I'd disappear for a couple of weeks and come back. Um, and, uh, and yeah, but I did, when I was doing the Amy Poehler show, Difficult People in New York, that was the most consistent. We were living in New York for, you know, four months at a time because it was, it was a big one. We were directing 10 episodes of a show at once. So, um, and what that meant was that we could go to fabulous big guest actors, you know, that um, that were friends of the showrunners and that they'd worked with and collaborated with and say, you know, is there is there one day in the next five months you could give us on the show? It's a very hard thing to say no to. So, you know, suddenly, you know, Julianne Moore would turn up or Martin Short, all these fabulous people. So it was a, it was a very, very special, you know, three years making that show. 
Amazing. And what I find really interesting about you, Jeff, is that, yes, you've built all these relationships in the U.S. If you wanted to be based there, if you wanted to raise your children there, you absolutely could. But you've chosen, no, you want to be based in Australia and you largely want to work on Australian productions at the moment anyway. Why yeah. is that? Well, I think I've always, I've, I've never, like, left, you know, I, even though I'd leave for little little passages of time. I mean, I've... You know, like I've grown up in this film business and it, it's shaped who I am, you know. So it's, um, and it's, you know, I love Australia and I love, you know, living where we live and all that kind of stuff is really the quality of life for my family is very important as it is for all, you know, mums and dads and stuff. So, um, and, you know, yeah, we, we feel really happy here. And I would say too that like the quality of both scripts now in the last few years as well, budgets and actors is like I, there's nowhere in the world that, I would be offered, you know, a better combo of those things. And, you know, like as recently as The Dodger, with our three leads in that, if you were making that show in any budget range anywhere in the world for any studio or network or whatever, you would cast the exact same people. So suddenly you're like, yeah, well, what, what, would, what would possibly drive me, you know, to, to go and do this anywhere else? So, um, yeah, and I love Australian crews and, uh, yeah, I just feel really happy here. And But, the, yeah, and the projects are travelling. They're all travelling around the world, both, you know, Dodger and... Um, and uh, the clearing, you know, on Hulu in the US. And so there's not this barrier where you make it here and, you know, let's hope a few hundred thousand people see it. And that's the hope that, you know, I had for a long time when I was working on Australian projects. And nowadays it's like, yeah, the sky's the limit, you know, for these shows. And every, you get to showcase all of your fabulous Australian buddies and collaborators work to the world, you know. And, uh, and so I'm you know, chuffed to be here doing it. It's such a beautifully shot series as well. It, it's when you watch it, you're like, this is a global cinematic experience. However, it's soundtracked by these incredible Aussie hits as well. You mm. know, you've got Jet in there. You've got The Living End in there. It's amazing. You've got Wolf Mother as like the opening yeah. track. I love that. I w I would, I'm so interested to know, though, how do you compare making a series in Australia to making a series in the US? How do those two industries, when it comes to making a series... Mm. Differ. Well, the, the, the biggest difference, the most intimidating part of working in the States is, is like the drive up. So in one or two ways, if you're on location, you drive past like blocks of trucks, like city blocks full of trucks and they're all there to make the show. And I'm just like dying a thousand deaths and stressed and, you know, like all of this. And I'm like, God, what does everyone do? And oh, it's going to be big and all this money. And, and so that or if you drive onto a studio lot, you know, as, as again, if I go back to, you know, this little kid, all he wanted to do was, you know. Um, was to work in Hollywood and you drive onto those classic Hollywood lots. doesn't matter. I did it, you know, every day that I was over there, I worked on so many things for 20th, but every day I drove up to the security and under the big, you know, the, the big archway that you drive under, heart starts racing every single day. So that stuff is nerve wracking. But by the time you actually get on set, it's exactly the same because you look around, there's your actors, first AD, DP, myself, that's it. So all of that layer that stresses me out, that's all there and, you know, it's making the machine work. But ultimately the process of achieving the scene, whatever the, the goal of that scene is or uh, both visually, performance-wise and everything else is identical and suddenly you just relax and then you're back into your happy place and, uh, yeah, working with actors and talented cinematographers and so on. So, um, yeah, so that's where it all sort of, you know, you can take a breath again and it feels very much like home. Do you have a bit of imposter syndrome? Like I wonder, of like when I when I imagine you coming up and you're seeing all this, you know, these trucks and this this very grand vision of mm. what a, a a US production looks like. A lot of that has to 
to do with, I guess, imposter syndrome in a way. Like everyone in my business. Can has you not it. look Every, at your awards? Like I no, mean, does, three makes, actor awards, six directors guild, fifteen nominations for directoral yeah. works. Come on, Jeff. No, no, it, it never leaves you ever because okay. I've got people that I look up to and I go, I could never do what they do, mm. and you know we're doing the same job. And I look at them and just go, oh, this is so talented. I can't believe it, you know. And I, I joke with my showrunner I'm working with at the moment. I'm just, you know, like any time they do something, they have to correct something, which is great. And that's what they're there for. They're helping me, you know, tell the, tell the story. Because I just go, oh, here we go. We're going to call that director. It's going to start tomorrow. I'm out, you know. So, yeah, you always feel like, you know, to stay relevant as a director and to keep, you know, doing things um, is really hard, you know, and, and as you sort of, you know, you get older, you sort of go, okay, well, the, what I don't have is probably the, you know, the freshness of voice that inevitably I had when I was 25. It just can't be there. So now, you know, what, how do you stay relevant along, alongside people that I love working with? I'm, you know, Dodge, it was Gracie Otto and Corrie Chen, who I think are fantastic. Um, and they're definitely, you know, a, um, an exciting new wave of director coming through in Australia and so I'm excited to work alongside them and you know and try and channel what they're up to and and um and so yeah so I'm always you know trying to improve and try to find that next thing and and but I, I would say that even the yeah the biggest actors I've worked with we all we all suffer from a little bit of that and it probably keeps us hungry and yeah it and serves grateful. you yeah yeah it it's not it's not a hindrance I don't I don't think it's crippling you know you don't sort of wake up and go oh my god I can't do today Mm. Today is just not going to happen. I'd rather pretend I was sick or you know whatever. I'm I'm being found out. You know I don't I don't think I'm I'm at risk of that as such, but I do come in and sort of think oh boy, um, yeah. Let's let's well, see what we come up with today. Yeah. Well, that's great. You kind of wake up instead of instead of going I can't do it. You wake up and go I need to do a good job. I need to do a good job. Yeah. And I was just chatting before to Peter. The thing with being a director as well is you can't be unless you're a really established big film director. You know you can't be good in some. You can't be good across the course of the week, it averaged out to pretty good. Mm. You need to be good in like 15-minute increments. You have to be good because it's so expensive, you know, what you're, what the whole process and journey that you're putting everyone through. Um, you're, the relationship you have with the actors is so important and with your DP and with your producers and everything, you can't have an off 15 minutes and that's quite intense for 70-day shoot or something like that. Mm. That's, that's, that's a hyper-focus, you know, to have that. Um, you know, so that, yeah, it does, that, that drive, you know, means that you're never resting on your laurels. You're always trying to make things as wonderful as you can, but, um, mm. yeah. And okay. speaking of that relationship that you need to have with your actors, can we talk about Tim Minchin? Because mm. he's such a polymath in my mind. He, he works on, in so many different sectors and so many different areas and so many different industries even. And he's one of your actors and you're his director but he's sometimes used to being on the behind-the-scenes um, yeah. part of a film or TV series. What was the dynamic between you two like? Well, we, we got a call from Tim to say, you know, listen, I've, all of my friends are auditioning or going for the show and I think it could be fantastic. And and so he said, you know, can I have a – which never happens, but he's like, you know, can I speak to you and your, your producer? And I was like, sure. And I didn't know Tim. I think I maybe met him once or twice, but wasn't a close friend or anything like that. Um, and he just said, I want to do something on it. And uh, – and he'd made his show upright and he was the writer and creator and he's very much in that way. And he said, look, I just want to, I just want to come in. He goes, no one really considers me to come in and just, you know, act in something because I come with more of an auteur sort of background. And, um, and he said, if there's something for me, could I have a look and, and a read? And of course we had, you know, we're instantly like, absolutely, let's, you know, let's find something for you. And, um, and, uh, and, but it was interesting because he was extremely respectful of the, process and he didn't need to be the big personality on set or anything like that he was very much you know to me and everything he's like yes sir yeah let's go for it and all this sort of stuff and he'd come in he was working with very very good actors on that that um you know he he thought were wonderful you know and david thoulis 
And we'd sometimes do a line run and he'd go, okay, wow, these guys are turning up and he'd go away and do his work for another 30 minutes and come back in. And um, and so he was really, really special, but he didn't see his position as needing to be the jokester or the big person on set or anything. He just turned up to go to work. And I think he also fancies himself as someone who would um, down the track, if not even sooner than down the track, uh, be a director. And so he was very close and he wanted to ask me a lot of questions. We hung out a lot on set. And of course, you know, I was just hoping the more time I spent with him, the more talent of his might rub off. So I was very happy for the exchange. <laughs> but um, but yeah, he was he was absolutely terrific and now, and now a dear friend too. Was there anything about the experience of the Artful Dodger that surprised you? Anything, anything that you experienced where you're like, oh, I didn't think that this would happen or this would come about or I would experience this kind of feeling. The, the cool surprise of it was, I think probably that's come from a little bit of experience and feeling a little more, you know, confident overall, you know, with, with taking on a new project is that um, I'd planned to shoot the show one way and then we started to rehearse it with Thomas Brody Sangster and uh, David Thulis and their chemistry and their rhythm together was beautiful. It was really beautiful and I thought, boy, the worst thing that I could do is, is try to get the... Be, come between their performance with an edit and, you know, a cool camera shot and this or that. And so when I started to see them work, it be, dawned on me that, you know, a lot of this stuff needs to be blocked as beautiful one-shot, you know, choreographed scenes where they're crossing each other over and the lens takes you around this way and then, you know, you're on their back for a second. That's okay because that line's all right and then they cross over at the right time. And so we ended up, you know, having a lot of fun with those two being able to kind of, you know, drive the blocking of the scene and normally you get someone's close-up, particularly in television, there's a close-up, there's a close-up, there's a close-up, and I realised that that would sort of be, you know, butchering their otherwise wonderful preparation, homework, and and ultimately their performance. So um, so that was the the gorgeous little surprise, and we would, you know... I'd just that seems harder. It seems like it's more impromptu. Well, the, the thing with... The, their preparation is unbelievable. The thing that I've noticed with the really, really big, you know, successful, uh, you know, world-class actors is their homework is unbelievable you think that they're going to come in they look at their size like forget it they've spent for me to shoot a scene that might only take 45 minutes sometimes they've probably spent anywhere in the vicinity of five or six hours on it so when i turn up chat to them about how it's going to play and they have a quick look through the blocking you know like almost like a um you know musician in the orchestra if you've ever seen like when they get a piece of sheet music for the first time they can play it mm. right they're the same. They've done their homework. They've done their 10,000 hours effectively, you know, whatever across the course of their life. And so they very quickly get that rhythm. And then they turn up. The crew know they need to be on on take one because the cast is going to be on take one. And then they have the confidence after two or three takes. And I look at them. I go, I'm really happy. Is there anything else you want? And they go, we got it. And you go, how easy is my gig? So, you know, that, that tier of talent is, you know, they don't get lazier or they don't get, you know, deaverish or anything like that. They mm. just get more and more pro, their preparation gets better um, and everyone lifts to those numbers one, two and three on the call sheet, you know, and uh, and so, um, yeah, it just made it exciting and I tell David's only deal was he had to, he wanted me to tell him like the day before or something what the blocking might be or which ones are the one-shot scenes, two-minute one-shot scenes um, and I'd rehearse them with a steady cam operator after work or whatever they were because we didn't have, you know, a lot of time to shoot, like we never do, you know, huge amounts of time in Australia. Um, and then we turn up and everyone had lock in and you'd know it was a you know special moment and that's like you know and that's director disneyland for a minute and then you go back to other stuff director disneyland nice tie in actually <laughs> i was looking at your resume and it's very diverse so you've got this heartwarming comedy film about a young muslim man for ali's wedding which i rewatched oh beautiful Good. film uh, and so funny oh my god so if you, if anyone here who's listening or is attending this podcast has not seen ali's wedding please check it out uh, and then you've got this psychological thriller about a woman battling a cult in the clearing 
How do you ensure that you don't lose your unique voice when it comes to your directing? Well, I think I'm, I'm actively pursuing things that, you know, challenge me. I think I probably look at it more like an actor looks at a script when I'm reading it. So every actor I know when they read, you know, something that they're looking for what's challenging in it. You know, where, where is it going to take me? And what, what, what psychology or emotional space am I about to explore? And, and that's nerve wracking at times. I haven't played that before. And so when I look at material, I'm looking for something that's going to take me somewhere, you know, very different. I mean, the clearing was really hard to choose that, to say, yes, I know it was for Miranda Otto as well, playing the cult leader, you know, of these, like, you know, got kids and they're feeding them LSD and it's awful. Um, and, and I remember reading it, it stayed in the opening scene, like in the opening two pages of Child's Kidnapped from the side of the road, you know, and... Um, and, and I'm looking at it, I'm just going like, well, all of my spidey senses at that point is like, this is really heavy and, you know, just go back to doing Modern Family and have a laugh and it'll be great. And so, but then I also thought, you know, well, this script stayed with me. It's beautifully written by Matt and Elise who wrote it. And, you know, they're both, you know, kind of Australian gun writers and so on and people that, you know, I respected a great deal. Um, and it stayed with me and I couldn't stop thinking about it and, you know, I was conflicted, you know, and I thought, well, they're all the reasons why you should probably jump off the deep end and explore this thing and find something out about yourself not everyone would do that some people would go it stayed with me because it's traumatic it and is, i'm yeah. going to run i know and it was traumatic it was traumatic for Teresa and i i think mm. to make it even though Teresa's lovely the lead actor because uh i mean she's got 50 million kids and you know she's like you know feeding she's like busy and all that mm. kind of stuff so you know she, you know we both kind of found the lightness to be able to navigate it but you know we're all having like the, the sad scary dreams along the way and all these things that kind of go with doing that sort of project um but I liked it. I, I think that probably if I could, you know, attribute the longevity that I've had now, 20 years of directing, would be that I've tried to vary the choices as much as possible and challenge myself as much as I can, move between genres as much as I can, different formats. Every, every project in the last few years has been uh, more challenging for one reason or another, not, not necessarily, you know, to, the, to everybody who would watch them and go, oh, no, that one looked pretty challenging or whatever. Just for me, there's one layer on it that's something that I've never done before, whether it's creative or whether it's practical or logistical, something that's drawn me to, um, yeah, trying to find that next advancement of the craft, you know, from my own personal point of view. Is there a certain film or director or moment that inspired your directing style? Because I have a quote here from the executive producers of The Artful Dodger, David Mayer and David Taylor, the Davids, uh, mm. who said, you're incredibly thoughtful, incredibly prepared with a huge sense of humour. Mm. So where did that style come from? Where the, where's your sense of humour is, I think, <laughs> where you were going to go with that. No. Um, uh I don't know. I mean, the, the, <clears throat> I thought when I was growing up, the Michael Jordan of my world, apart from real Michael Jordan, because he was Michael Jordan at the time, I was growing up was Steven Spielberg. Mm. So, you know, this like rock star. I couldn't believe now I'm doing it with my kids that you can watch all of these movies in a row and they're made by the one person, you know, you go from E.T. and Raiders. And it was just unbelievable to me, you know, as a kid. And so, um, and I think that when I look back on it now, it wasn't as, as much as, you know, the craft with Steven Spielberg's movies are amazing and um, performances are beautiful and all that sort of stuff. They're very, very affecting emotionally and you can watch them a thousand times, all that sort of stuff. It was actually more that just they're, you know, they are a movie experience and the, 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 the feeling that you get that sort of popcorn quality that comes with that sheer entertainment of, of what, you know, particularly in his early films, 
um, you know, what was there, that was what drove me to want to do, that was why I wanted to become an actor when I was you know, six and a half years old watching this stuff, you know. So um, I cottoned on very early that there was sort of a, a painter behind the canvas and I was like fascinated by all of that, you know, and, and of course uh, not many directing gigs for, gigs for a seven-year-old, so acting was the way in, you know, and then, and then I've just bugged all the, you know, directors and cameramen that I worked with for 10 years, you know, to teach me stuff. Um, and learned as much as I could and started to make short films and everything else. But really, it was all subterfuge, you know, the acting for, for what I wanted to ultimately do. Um, but, yeah, from there. And then, you know, of course, your, your taste broaden and all that sort of thing. But I think that there's a feeling that I get watching those films that um, I'll never forget where I was the first time I saw them and all that, that feeling that I had. And that was that kind of capturing of an imagination of a young person and, and then a, a hyper-focus for the next however many decades it has been, you know, on that one thing. The other thing that, you know, that capturing of an imagination is such a great way to put it because I look at your career and I look at the creativity and the imagination that is needed in order to have the career that you've had. But I also think that creativity needs momentum. Um, and I wondered, when have you felt that, that fact, that creativity needs momentum the most? Um, well, do you mean in terms of being prolific and working or do you think in terms of actually creating the piece? In, in terms of being prolific, in terms of yeah. actually, you know, getting that thing going and having that career that you've now got. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's everything. I think that, like, momentum is the strongest force in the universe, you know. Once something starts and you're so lucky if you can taste it for a second, you know. And and usually even momentum, you know, if, you, if you're lucky to have it, it ebbs and flows and everything else. Um, you know, I've got the combo of things, which is that, you know, I'm, I'm so happy on a film set. I'm, you know, just it's... I don't know anything else. I'm just so happy in that space and I love the people I work with. I, I can't even express without, you know, to the crew and to everybody how grateful I am to them each day without choking up. We do a speech at the start of each day. Normally it's about safety and whether what, what locations we're going to and all that stuff. And I try to, you know, bluff my way through being able to, you know, go, man, I'm really grateful to you guys and I start choking up. I'm just so happy to be there, right? So <clears throat> what that begets, pardon me, <clears throat> what that begets is that, you know, I want to keep doing it all the time. I don't get fatigued and burnt out by working on project after project or things overlapping and everything. I think it's harder to juggle it with family. I'm very lucky to have, you know, an incredible, supportive, wonderful wife who, you know, runs our world and everything else. Um, and I make, you know, as much, um, I take as much time as I can in any way, whether it's through pre-production, weekends, everything, to, you know, make sure that I'm available to the kids and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, it's, it's you know, for better or worse, like the, the filmmaking side of my life is my identity. It's completely wrapped up in it. And it's not when I'm on set. It's like when my heat, feet hit the floor in the morning, I'm a director. It's, just, it's every part of who I am now, you know. So, um, so what that means is that when the opportunities come up to direct something next and next and next and that post-production is going to overlap with the next pre-production, like, let's get it. Let's go for it. Mm. And so... Um, you know, and I think that anyone who's uh, yeah, lucky to experience momentum in, in the film business, you know, over a consistent period, you're, you know, you're, you have to acknowledge you're in very rarefied air. And, you, and if you don't wake up and feel grateful for that, my goodness, you know, so, um, so when someone calls me and I go and get another gig, I can't believe it. And so I'm like a kid again, you know, it's, it's the same feeling. It's amazing. Even just chatting to you right before we came onto the stage, you're working on a project that we cannot talk about, but it was, it seems so soon after your last project. And, you know, th there's this excitement that you have around this unnamed top secret project. Mm. Um, just because you know that how rare it is to keep that momentum going. Absolutely, and I think it builds over years too. I noticed this when I actually when David Thulis, who's our um, our Fagan in the Artful Dodger, you know, he uh, he feels the same. Like the longer that you can keep doing, I think when you're on the up, when you're sort of you've got an overt ambition, 
that's probably not you at your best to be completely honest for a lot because you've just got to get that thing and you've got to be focused on that and sometimes you know some of the other graces that you might carry in your life you know get pushed to the side because you're so ambitious and hungry when you get to a point i guess where you're able to you know work more consistently and this is now starting to feel not like one thing i got to do but this is going to be your career the gratitude builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and the sadness that comes at the end of each project knowing that you're the first few you're like and i'll see you again and you're like actually you probably won't mm. and that you you know you, everyone you know works so closely together the collaboration is so enjoyable everyone you know becomes great friends and it because you don't have a social life outside of filmmaking it's 90 hours of your week and everything else they are your social life you know and and suddenly like a tap it turns off you know and so the gratitude builds the more that you can do it's not the other way around when you go you know i've got my first job and that was great and then from then on i just you know turn up it builds and builds and builds and so yeah so each one and like today i go to work after we you know finish this chat and i was on a night shoot last night and we just got to hop in your step and it's exciting and mm. i'm looking forward to it I feel like the, the film industry now is very different to when you were a young kid looking up at Steven Spielberg going, I got to do that. I mm. got to, I got to be there in it. Uh, you know, when you look at business models for movies, the metrics are, are varied in this new era and there's less people in theaters. Uh, more people are streaming. Mm. Given that, how do you measure success? It's a really good question. The, the film side of it's really tricky these days because the last thing I did, um, the portable door for Stan, which was so much fun. Christoph Waltz and Sam Neill, like it was just the best. I just had so much fun making it. And it was the first time really that uh, I'd made a film with, that's an indie film. I'd made two other films, but they were very much in the classic indie model of film that you have a cinema thing and then hopefully it sells to a streamer. This was a streamer film and the whole thing is very, very different. You know, it, it did have a, a very small window that they had to put it in the cinemas, but they didn't really promote it to the cinemas because it's, you know, Stan's bread and butter is not in the cinemas it's at home and people watch it over the easter you know holidays was when we made that film for and so in essence you're sort of like well this actually you kind of make it more like it's a high the highest end you can imagine but it's a tv movie you know you're making it for people to watch at home on the televisions and you know um and of course you know on that one I have big you know uh, legendary cinematographer don McAlpine shooting it you know who'd made moulin rouge and all these things and so it has a big cinema quality but ultimately you know it kind of it's going to be watched on someone's hopefully large and well calibrated television most mm. likely not on their phone or something or an ipad mm. so yeah so it does change what that what that world is who you're making it for who's your audience how long are people going to watch it for how are they going to hear about it all those things and it hasn't stopped me necessarily from sort of going you know okay well uh, i wouldn't work in film i very very happily work in film but i do need to sort of pivot what my mindset is of probably where i'd seen you know films as recently as you know 10 years ago, you know, what an indie film is, a grown-up film at the cinema to go and see, they're few and far. Um, and so that's why I'm, you know, really thrilled to be working in, you know, limited limited series probably as, as a director is a, is a bit of a um, jewel in the crown at the moment, I would say. You know, fabulous actors are drawn to them, wonderful scripts, and you get to really see a big character arc through over, you know, six hours or whatever, four hours of television. Um, and, uh, and the production values are great and you get more money to do it. So, so like, they're pretty good. So, you know, I think that I'll probably hopefully dip back in and, and make more films, but I probably will have my eyes, you know, wide open to, um, yeah, the different ways that people are experiencing that now and, um, and hopefully, yeah, keep skewing things toward the best way that it can be consumed and enjoyed.
Mm, beautiful. And I, I, do, I do love like a restricted series where I just, oh, yeah. where I know I've got to finish because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, there are seasons where you're just like, there's seven or eight seasons. I don't know if I have the time for this. Well, it's also hard when someone's told you in their five, it's five seasons and you're like, when am I catching up? Yeah. When am I catching up? When you can know? I get to a point where I can have a conversation with you about <laughs> that's this? That's right, We're exactly. different levels. Yeah, you've got to go and binge it all and everything. So yeah, and they're, and they're real. I mean, that's talk about, you know, rare air, that, that sort of ongoing eight to 10 eps of a season now, you know, that can run for four or five or six. I mean, that, that hardly happens in that prestige level, you know. HBO have a handful and, you know, Netflix have a handful, but it's 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 really special. So, you know, but being able to do limited series like The Clearing, uh, you know, which is a start to end, you know, fully wraps itself up, you know, and in, in the end everything pays off and it's one and done. You know, they're really special and, and it is like making one long movie in that way. Amazing. Do we have anyone from the audience who would like to ask Jeff a question? Oh, we've got one here. Hi. My name is Jack. Um, I uh, lecture film and television, um, lecturing the actors today. Um, I was curious, Jeffrey, in terms of your career as an actor, was there a sort of turning point when you were, I guess, chasing jobs as a director, chasing, you know, shooting productions? Did it, was there anything attributed to it going the other way around? Like, my assumption is that you're being, you know, sort of headhunted and people are coming to you. Like, was there a shifting point? Like, could you attribute that, that to anything in particular? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it, yeah, there's like little director milestones that you that you hit in the in every space. Like, I didn't pursue a, you know, I didn't come at directing with because I had this wonderful, like, soul vision, my script, I'm going to make this film come hell or high water and all that. I, I, I came at it in a very pragmatic... I'd been on set a long time, but I didn't have a unique directorial voice. I knew how a set ran. I could, you know, shoot the day, work well with actors, but I didn't have anything unique about me. I was really coming in to copy what the director had done on the earlier episodes of the show and and do my best version of that, you know. So I came at it that way then, and and I was really young, so I didn't have much life experience beyond, you know, the what you know any kid does outside of work, and then the fact that I'd done the you know the um, the acting stuff, you know. So. Um, yeah, so at 20 or, you know, whenever it was, I started directing and it was doing episodes of other other shows that are very, very established as almost like, a, you know, an, op- an opportunity to come in and hone it and learn. And the first opportunity that I had to set up a show was a big step and that was the show Dance Academy and I was offered the first episode of that show, which means as a television director, suddenly you're not copying someone else's style and mimicking, you're coming in to bring your, you can do it, you know, here's the keys to the car, off you go, you know. Um, and they had to support, you know, your vision and what what's a, what vision do I have and what shows was I watching at the time? What's going to inspire how we're going to film this show and how, what's the performance style? What's the music going to be like? All these things I'd never thought about or had to th- think about in, in the other form and I absolutely loved it. I loved the pressure of it all. So that and then after that, then you start to do like, you know, one-off at that time it was TV movies were the next step and it was the Jack Irish movies with Guy Pearce and so that was another big step and so it's all those little things that you know kind of help along the way to ultimately yeah you get to um, uh, yeah and even, but even now with this recent one that I'm you know shooting presently there was another big step for me to take to do that and so I think that you, yeah that there are those sort of big milestone moments that hopefully further qualify for some other exciting thing down the track that you know might challenge you in another way. My name's Tom. Uh, I work in the animation and games department. Cool. Um, I would really like to know, because um, you've worked in comedy a lot, what you would feel that Australia, and, pr- and probably also in New Zealand, I feel is kind of similar to us, our like strongest areas are in comedy, what we do best that maybe the rest of the world you know, could, could, could learn from. Um, and maybe also what you'd like to see more of going forwards that you haven't seen for a while or you think is an avenue that we could really go down. Yeah. 
That's a that's a great question. I, I think comedy is interesting, isn't it? Because you know Australia had a sort of uh, you know it's had multiple, but it had a film renaissance in the early '90s when I was young and so into the you know the the industry and everything else in Muriel's and Priscilla and you know soon after the castle and all this sort of stuff. You know, and you know com Australian comedy had it was sort of known throughout the world. It had this unique sort of take on you know things. Its specificity made it funny. I think New Zealand is probably the best in the world, in the, in the Western world, for specificity of culture coming through in comedy. If you look at you know some English, if you look at great rom-coms of you know the Brits from you know the nineties, if you look at Four Weddings and everything, that was so specific to funny British comedy, but it travelled that specificity travelled throughout the world. And so I think when you can sort of you know, if you go broad with something that maybe you try to be universal with something and it's sort of like, yeah, that's good. You could tell that story anywhere, but it didn't kind of give me a little insight. And so maybe Australian comedy when it's at its best, um, Colin from Accounts, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, it, it taps into an Australian something. It's not Australiana and it's not, you know, whatever, but it's it's unique to a time and it's unique to, you know, kind of what, um, you know, what, uh, what we're sort of outputting, I guess, in that way. Um, in terms of, you know, what I'd like to see more of and what's ahead, I think that, you know, there's uh, ultimately the, the, the best advice, and this wasn't the case, you know, six or seven years ago, but, you know, if you're a creator, um, is there is a, uh, there's a pathway now for big ideas to actually be made in Australia. So we used to be able to tell great stories within a very small confine. If you think of things like, you know, the slap is absolutely brilliant. It's very suburban, shot in and around Melbourne, not a huge budget but enough to make a good sort of drama. Um, Rake, when I worked on that, was the same. It was fabulous actors all shot in around Sydney for, you know, in the bigger picture, pittance. Now, you know, you have all of ac access to all of those wonderful and talented, you know, um, actors or whatever it might be, but you can give it a, a big grand scope and you can actually get financed for it in Australia. The Awful Dodger is created by, uh, co-created by Jim McNamara. It's his first show running gig. And it was like tens of millions of dollars. I don't even know what the budget ended up being. It was huge. And he had this big grand thing. He wrote this beautiful pilot that attracted all these world-class actors. And, I mean, that would be unthinkable that an Australian would write The Artful Dodger, you know, 10 years ago. Like the ABC couldn't have funded it, BBC co-pro, maybe, I don't know. You know, but um, so now I would just urge that, you know, it's okay to have a big idea. You don't have to make it your first thing or whatever, but... I, you know, know that the industry has a, uh, you know, the, the buyers, the net, you know, the streamers, all that sort of stuff, they do have a, a taste for stuff that can travel internationally. It can be specific to Australia, but it can hit a big, a big goal. And, uh, and that's what we certainly try to do with the clearing and with um, Dodger. I'm Madeline. I'm also one of the acting students. Um, obviously, a director is a big integral part in the pre-production of a show or film or whatever the project is. I was just wondering what your main inspirations are in order to transport yourself into the world you're building? Like, do you listen to, like, music or, like, is it artwork and, like, that sort of stuff? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. I bet you do the same. But, it, I, but yes, music is huge. I can't even begin to block a scene or draw unless I've got a playlist sorted for what the thing is. And, and the more different the playlist is from the last show, the more excited I am. But I can't go back to the same piece of Vivaldi over and over. I've got to change it up, you know, so... Uh, you know, kind of changing, you know, that, I go, okay, now you need to look at it through this space a little bit more is really important. I'm a bit like, uh, it's probably annoying to most people, but I like everything to be just so. So, you know, if I've got, if I'm cluttered or I'm thinking of other things, I, then the creativity doesn't really flow. Um, 
so I, you know, I like to sort of, yeah, I've had my little routine that I'm sort of set up. I'm a bit old school, so I've got, you know, beautiful pen and paper when I do my work and all that sort of stuff and do all my drawings and storyboarding and all that sort of stuff. So I try to create an environment that's conducive to, you know, what whatever my creative journey is with it. The other thing that I've found is that um, I like to read things over and over and over and over and over and over more times than I used to before I start doing all my planning. And, and I find that, you know, if you rush to the execution, so in your case, you're just learning the lines and I'm building that, that scene. I've got that scene. I've learnt it. Terrific. Great. You know, you've got a great memory, but that's not, you know, performing the scene. The more, don't worry about learning it. If you just read it and read it and read it and read it and suddenly it's like a piece of cake to learn. The equivalent for that in my case is that then it's so obvious how I would shoot the scene because I know what it's actually about. It's not like, oh, that's a cool shot. Like, who cares if it's a cool shot? It doesn't matter if you're not telling the story and whose psychology, whose perspective are you in and who's the point of view and where's the point of view, you know? Is it subjective or it's objective? All those things become really easy once you've just, you know, read it over and over and over. So, um, yeah, I've got lots of little things that I try to do and, um, and little routines and little anal attentive, you know, processes and stuff that, um, you know, help me feel like I'm, you know, giving myself the best chance to, you know, be creative and start something. But it's also like pacing yourself as well. I think there's, you know, when you're nervous and you're starting out, you don't know where you should be at each point. Let's say you're about to do a play or something like that. Should I be off book on day one? Do I trust myself that I don't need to be and I'll be okay by week two? You know what I mean? It's those sort of things. And the more I do it now, and, and I think I try to, you know, because ultimately to everyone's stressed during pre-production when I work and everyone's doing their, they're all frazzled, there's never enough money and everyone's stressed. And, you know, no matter how much money you've got, you've never got enough to make the show that, you know, everyone wants to make. So. But I always realise that if I'm just nice and calm and I'm listening to everybody and taking everything on and everything, then everyone picks up on that vibe as well. So I just go, we'll get there. You know, we've done this before and all that stuff. So, yeah, that's it. I'm Ben and I'm an uh, acting student as well. And um, my question was, uh, like, regarding people uh, getting more and more tired of, like, the big Hollywood franchise machine and, like, the growing success, uh, like international success of Australian films, along with your own experience working both here and in America, do you think that there's a future in which Australian cinema could sit with, like, on the same level as Hollywood and the UK in terms of, like, mass consumption and acclaim? Well, definitely we've got the talent to do it. I mean, you know, if you look at, um, you know, I would, I would class, you know, in the ANZ side of things that, you know, Taika by association makes, you know, his films in Australia with Australians. You know what I mean? Like, he, you know, it's, uh, we, we definitely have the talent. Um, you know, George Miller recently made for some unbelievable amount of money, Furiosa here with, you know, all Australian crew, production designers, you know, all this sort of stuff. So we've got the talent to do it. In terms of, you know, I mean, you know, they're, they're getting their films financed. They're Australian, they're big. They're at the absolute top of the tree. Um, you know, in terms of Australian productions, there's nothing, you know, bigger than, you know, the Thor and the Furiosas being made. So we have the capacity to do it. Uh, the harder thing is, yeah, in this climate, just hardest thing, period, is to pitch something that's original and get it financed to that sort of, you know, degree is really hard without the backing of an existing IP, Marvel or something else. And I think that we're glad that they're all <coughs> out there, but there's, you know, it's always exciting when you go, you know, oh, there's a new fresh concept and that, you know, could be made in Australia. So traditionally in Australia, you know, our budget ranges haven't, you know, been, you know, particularly, you know, big when it comes to, you know, an Australian film or different sort of content or whatever. Um, but, you know, something like Portable Door was, in essence, by today's, you know, standards, it was a very original concept based on a series of books 
um, you know, that aren't Harry Potter or anything. They're fabulous books, but they hadn't, you know, they're not like New York bestsellers. So it felt original. We could have a take on it. And we, I think we raised about 20 or 25 million to make it, had a wonderful cast, traveled all over the world and, you know, been nominated, won a bunch of prizes, all this sort of stuff. And that was an Australian film written by an Australian, directed by an Australian, um, all Australian crew, mostly Australian New Zealand cast with the exception of, you know, Christoph. Um, and, uh, and the Jim Henson Company were, you know, from the States were right behind it and helped us make it. So there is an opportunity for sure, you know, for Australia to play in that sandbox, so to speak. And I think that, you know, by the time that, uh, yeah, the sort of the next generation will be very interesting to see, you know, already in the, if you look at the television case, what we were making shows for, you know, 800 grand an episode, you know, but a few years ago now, maybe 5 million an episode you can get for so. So if film follows that same sort of path, um, yeah, anything's possible. Hi, I'm Izzy. I'm a film and television student. Um, you guys spoke about the momentum of creativity and your pressure to, as a director, to with budget and t time schedule limitations that you need to keep moving. How do you think that you maintain that enthusiasm to keep going and keep working on one project and avoid burnout or pick yourself up after that burnout and keep going this sounds so lame but i'm just gonna say it, but it's it's gratitude it's um, it's so cheesy it's like the cheesiest answer but it's just yeah it's overwhelming gratitude i could even get like emotional just talking it's, it's like to, to be able to come in like all you guys want to do it so all i have to do is think about you guys and how much you want to do it and i'm doing it so i'm so i'm so lucky i can't believe it so you don't you don't get burnout you just you know, you, you are tired, but you're so lucky to be doing it. So, um, yeah, I think uh, you pace yourself in the right way. Sometimes I've done shoots and they're a sprint, a 20-day shoot. This, you know, presently is a 70-day shoot. It's a very, very different sort of pacing through it, you know. To think I'd be wrapping a shoot, a whole shoot this Friday is so crazy to me when I'm, you know, I don't know, 15 days or 16 days into um, into a 70-day shoot now. It's so, so different, right? So um, you pace yourself differently, you know, but uh, if you're turning up and even if it's hard, like if you go home at the end of a shoot day and it's been really, really hard and you're thinking about it, you're like, how lucky are you that you care enough about what you do that you brought it home in that way? You're not bringing it home because you've got a horrible person you have to battle at work and all those things that a lot of people bring their work home. You bring it home because you care about it and what could you have done better and what can I do better tomorrow? So, yeah, so I've, I, I haven't... I haven't experienced, you know, burnt out. I get tired. And I need holiday and break every now and then, like every everyone does. But um, but no, it's a, there's it's a it's a you know I yeah, just you know, feel really lucky. That's it. Yeah. I'm feeling a lot of gratitude right now. I'm so thankful for you, Jeff. I'm so thankful for our industry that we get to have you here in Australia when you absolutely could be based essentially anywhere in the world um, and that you are keeping your expertise homegrown and sharing it with people like myself and the lucky JMC students uh, and experts that are here today with us. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Poppy. Thank you.